are going to continue our study through the letter, the New Testament letter, 1 Corinthians. Your Bible is separated into two primary sections, if you would. 66 books in two sections, the Old Testament and then the New Testament. The New Testament conveys the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling us about the um, work of God bringing salvation to mankind. We're told that uh, about Jesus' life. We're told of his miraculous birth. We're told of how he lived a sinless life. We're given details, even as Kim drew attention to a particular account and, and different things, how he interacted with people, how he, he lived out this love that we're, we read about, how he laid down his life, give his life as a, as a sacrifice, as a sin payment, although he had no sin, he died for your sin, for my sin, that we could be forgiven. So we read about that in the Gospels, and, and then also we read about the continuing work of God in what we know to be the church, the ecclesia, speaking of those who were called out of this world and called into a relationship with Him. And so this series we've been going through in First Corinthians, I've titled, you know, Called Out, Called Up, God's Invitation to Live and Love at a Higher Level. Because that's really what he's invited us to in this born-again experience, this new life. Prior to you, to I, to any one of us being born again, we lived on an earthly plane. On this earthly level, there is worldly wisdom. Wisdom that pertains to this life, whether it's principles of physics or science or, you know, there's just certain facts and truths and wisdom at this level. But when you committed your life to Christ, when you agreed with God concerning your sin, when you agreed that you needed forgiveness and that only God could forgive you, the only God who can forgive you is the one that paid for your sins, Jesus Christ. And so when you believed him, when you responded to his invitation, you were born again. Living at the same level, you now are indwelt from above, if you would, in the person of the Holy Spirit enabling you and me to now live at this level, but with wisdom from above and from love from above, which then helps us as we live here, but experience and express His love. I say that because when we read through the Bible, and specifically in this chapter, or this, this chapter and this letter we're in, you know, we don't want to see it as something that's, historical but not practical. Happened back back then, but it's not so relevant for today, as some inaccurately say. Corinth, this city we're reading, or this letter where the church was, 1 Corinthians, so there's the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the birth, if you would, the physical manifestation of the church, and the church now is, is a growing work of God from Jerusalem into the known world. Well, one of the places that the church grew and became a gathering, and kind of like us here, if you would, was the city of Corinth, a port city, a city with commerce, um, business opportunity, uh, education, arts and entertainment. Um, it was a cultural hotspot in that day, if you would. Corinth was much like our culture today. There was affluence. There was uh, reasonable comfort, um, opportunity. 
But sadly, it was also like today, sexually obsessed, morally bankrupt, deeply depraved, and arrogantly indifferent to God. Sound familiar? Let me review that one more time. (laughs) Sexually obsessed society, morally bankrupt, deeply depraved, and arrogantly indifferent to God. Those in our world today, many who are called successful by the world's measure, who are multi-billionaires and have all the seeming power in social media and other influences with because of their money, are arrogantly indifferent to God. Is that Would you consider that a true statement? I mean, I don't know them at a personal level, but their practices and their presentation and how they carry themselves, it shows they don't need God. They got so much money, they don't need God. Which is interesting because you can't buy a slot in heaven. It's already been paid for. There's only one way to get there. And all these things can be a distraction. So, so Corinth was a lot like what we deal with, the culture. It's interesting. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells you and me, there's really nothing new under the sun. The, the things are still pretty much the same. To get a grasp of it, maybe I would say it this way. If you want to understand Corinth and how it relates to contemporary culture, if you would blend the perversion of San Francisco, mix that in with the ungodliness of New York, cover it with the commerce and pleasure-seeking of Los Angeles, you'd have first century Corinth. That's just kind of what we're... Now, that's why I think it's important to know, because it does have application for us. How do we live in love at a higher level? How can we be in the world, but not of this world, be born from above? So we've been going through this, the first 11 chapters... We have been exhorted to be spiritually minded in a culture that is natural or carnally minded, which is where you live. We've been looking at practical instruction for the church concerning um, divisions within the gatherings, divisiveness. That was in the first couple chapters. Um, We've looked at uh, instruction to the church in regards to sexual immorality, principles of marriage, uh, friendship, brotherhood. Uh, we've been cautioned as we work through this about how we interact with those outside, as well as how we would conduct ourselves within the gathering, within the body of Christ. So that's chapters 1 through 11. And then in chapter 12, we were introduced to the gifts of the Spirit and the function of those gifts, which is fascinating because he's like addressing, this is where you live, spiritual in the natural, and it's a battle and a struggle. Now, as I've taught you about these things and given you instruction, I want you to understand, I also give you empowerment, enablement, tools, if you would, to accomplish what I would call you to, the the gifts of the Spirit and their function. That's chapter 12. Chapter 14, we have more detail concerning the purpose and the use of spiritual gifts. But what we see beautifully sandwiched between chapters 12 and 14, not numerically, but by content, purposely centered between the chapter on spiritual gifts, these two chapters, we have the love chapter. The love chapter. Have you ever guys anybody read 1 Corinthians 13? Have you been to a wedding? I mean, it, it, it's surprisingly, it's not heard from the pulpit as much as I think it should be. But interestingly enough, it's, heard, it's mentioned at other times. But we're going to dig into that. We're going to look at the preeminence of love, the practice of love, And the perfect work of love as we work through it. We'll bring these up again as we work through. But before we work through that outline, let's put our hearts in line by praying. God, thank you 
Oh, for your presence today. What a beautiful time to, just to be able to worship by way of music, to be able to um, be drawn in with this a beautiful thing that you've given us with music, to be able to focus upon you and sing unto you and worship and adore you. And, and God, also we know that even now as we would turn our attention towards your word, as our hearts would be softened by you, that too is an act of worship that we would be formed and shaped by you for your purposes, for your glory, that we'd be freed from anything that would be tangling us up and tripping us up. God, you know each one of our needs. You know us perfectly. You know what we struggle with. You know where we're weighed down and worried. You know what excites us and stirs us to joy. And you know perfectly even today what to emphasize, but to bring about in our minds and hearts for your glory, God. Teach us your word. Walk us through, Jesus, that we can be closer to you, that our lives would be an expression of worship, and that we would be filled with the Spirit in such a way that you would be glorified. May we decrease and you increase for your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, let's jump in. I'd like to read all of chapter 13, only 13 verses. And then we're going to cover the through verse 8 today and pick up um, the rest of it. The intention is next week. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, But have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, and thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. For that which is perfect has come then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. All right, let's just start back up at the top, as mentioned, with the preeminence of love. Preeminence, of course, speaking of surpassing all others. Surpassing all other spiritual gifts is the content, or speaking of from chapter 12 to 13. Love is above all other intents or motives. Divine love is above all other drives or desires, if you would. Divine love, this agape love, is a gift. We'll look at the different 
usage of the word love from in the translation when we get into our next section. But let's just begin with what's being presented. You know, if I could speak with other tongues, in other words, speaking in a language that's comprehensible to someone. And we'll get into the, the gift of tongues in chapter 14 in far more detail, which is a beautiful gift to be used according to scriptural uh, outline and guidelines. But suppose you have perfect oratory, uh, powerful enunciation. When he says that, you know, it's like um, the tongues of men and of angels. It, 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 it just stirs a curiosity within me. What does the angelic voice sound like? You know, it's got to be pretty impressive. Agreed? I mean, there's got to be something there. It's like, man, if you could speak with that, but yet you do not convey love, you're an obnoxious noise. That's literally what it's saying. It's like if I'm up here and I can just reach over there and smack the cymbal randomly for no apparent reason, just a clang, you'd be like, what in the world was that for? Well, that's kind of what's being said. If you could do this so fluently and you could speak so eloquently and you could talk to your neighbor with such amazing tone, but you're a jerk, it matters nothing. It's actually worse. You actually are a hindrance, if you would. You know, um, just thinking this through, I think sadly, you know, um, I know my experience a little bit in this topic, but having engaged with many people over the three decades, I've been a believer Many people have avoided church because the communication from the lobby and face-to-face, and more so from the pulpit, was condescending and critical. More finger-pointing, fault-finding, than soul-stirring and lifting up. It was more being yelled at than being loved. And people were like, ah, kind of blown back. The message may have been true, but the method was too severe. Now, I'm not talking about something where you're convicted. Have you ever had somebody speak to you and you're convicted? Like, oh, man, that's so true. And then you don't want to talk to them anymore. It's not that they necessarily did wrong. It's just you're uncomfortable with the revelation of your problem. And you're wondering if they know. Like, I've had one person say to me one time, like, how do you, do you get my, how do you get my mail? How do you know what I'm going through? And I'm just like, I didn't know you were going to be here today. So how could I, you know, I'm not pointing it at you. And I know, we know that it, it's the, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit in regards to truth for the purpose of comfort and correction for building a person up. God does not yell and scream at people to put them down so they know that they're losers. You don't, we don't need someone to kind of come down heavy on us, agreed? I, I, I'm not undermining or any way saying we don't recognize deep conviction. But we got to understand that when you're talking to somebody in the lobby or speaking to a neighbor, or I'm walking through and we're looking at the word, God's word according to love, if, if we're heavy handed and severe, what's, what's, what's the response? I know what's response. It's like, Geez, Mr. Perfect up there yelling at everybody. You know, and if you see what I'm saying? There's a part where it's like, okay, let's make sure that our way we communicate and the way we engage has a drive to it, a motive in it, an intent, a hope, a goal, an aspiration. What is that? That people would know love. 
and being built up and encouraged by the word of God and by the work of God in their life. And so what he's saying is you could you could have all this stuff. You could speak beautifully. You could sound like an angel. But if you don't have love, you're obnoxious. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. I think I love this part about removing mountains because Jesus did say, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, let's see, itty bitty faith. If you have that faith in line with God's will, you could move a mountain. You could pray to this mountain to have it move. So why do I find that humorous? Well, because we happen to live in Mountain Home. And in Mount Home, as people have chosen that base on their sheet and, you know, thought, oh my gosh, this will be awesome. Idaho, western mountains, pictures of alpine lakes and timber and snow-capped mountains. Like, yes, I'm taking Mount Home. And then they get here. And not only do they get here, they have to go 12 miles into the desert looking at mountains on the other side that they can't even get to. And they're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And they finally decide, i got to get with God because my life just went terrible. And so they show up at church, and I'm, I'm talking to them. They're like, oh man, we come in. We're like so bummed out. And I'm like, well, see, here's what happened. Somebody had a little bit of faith about, about, four, about 100 years ago, and they just moved the mountains out of way. Used to, they used to be here. And they're looking at me like, really? Like, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's this, if we have this faith that could move mountains, that's an enormous, that's a powerful, that's an amazing faith. A faith with strength. A faith that was phenomenal, yet no love. It profits nothing. It literally gains nothing for the kingdom. Nothing gets accomplished in regards to the purpose and intent. Prophecy is literally... The way to see the gift of prophecy is, is, is God's word in a given situation or circumstance where it's brought forth and it touches the heart. But if that happens and the word is brought forward and declared and you can see it's, wow, that's true, but it's done in a condescending way or, or some way that puts people down, it doesn't do any good. It, it, does, it literally, he literally says, I, I'm nothing. I've accomplished nothing. Though, what if I could bestow all my goods to feed the poor? And though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. You could be sacrificial. You can be gracious and kind and empathetic. But if you don't do it with love, it says you do not honor God. It doesn't produce the result that God desires for that. And I think about that, you know, you can do all these wonderful things. And I think many of us do want to do nice things and, and good things and gracious things. And our intent seems to be right. But then when, when it's not, if you do something very nice for someone and then you say, now you need to get your act together. I can't be helping you all the time. If you're then kind of like critical or you go back and talk about them, it's like you didn't do it in love. I was trying to get out of sharing this, but it really fits and I don't... I've shared it before, and it just—it's my own personal life. It's not anything I'm proud of, but when it has application, I feel compelled to share it, even though I don't want to. So, some years ago, I was a young Christian, and our next door neighbor. So we we live in this house that's two lots. It's a really huge place, two lots, 
They're 50 by 75, 25 by 75, 25 feet, 50 feet. They would, they would fit inside here. They're really small lots. We're just kind of like, what's this crazy? An older subdivision. There's a vacant lot, and then there's Grandma Betty, we called her, grumpy old lady. And so here we've got our house and her, that vacant lot and hers. Well, I'm shoveling snow in our house, and I know she doesn't have anybody to help. Her family's not around. I'm like, oh, I should go help shovel her lot. You know, just should shovel the snow. But, you know, I've got things I need to get done. The game's coming on here in a little while. All these little things. Finally got past myself enough, a little bit, to just, I'll just go do it. So I do. I shovel across the vacant lot. Just a single path, pretty easy. Get to her place. I do this the sidewalk or the step, and then just start down it. And she's peeking out the window, and I look up at her, and she just, like, shuts the window. She's grumpy. So I'm like, okay, whatever. I know. I don't know her life story, so I'm good with that anyway. So I'm shoveling away. Mr. Noble doing a good deed, you know, like a little Christian halo over my head and all this cool stuff, you know, just really doing the right thing. And I know she's she's watching, but she's not appreciative. And I'm shoveling along. And I, maybe she'll put me in her will. (laughs) What? Literally, that thought went through my mind. Mr. Noble doing it for the right reason. and, And maybe she'll put me in her will. I'm like... I just stopped. I'm like, I wanted to throw up. I'm like, oh, what is, and so I'm like, man, like a state employee, I'm just sitting here thinking, or I mean a federal employee, not a state. I'm just sitting here thinking, holding on my shovel, like what the, where did that come from? And I realized deep within me was the right intention. I did go over there because I knew it was just the right thing to do for her. But attached to that intention, that motive, is what I call a leech motive that sucks the life out of the primary motive. Doing the right thing, but then realizing there's other things that may want to, oh, maybe I'll get this. So I had to literally consciously say, God, I don't want to be drawn away by false motives. I want to do it for the right reason. And I knew it was out of love. So you know, realize if we don't do it for love, if love is not to drive the the... the force behind our good works, our efforts, our encouragement, our exhortation, our utilizing of the gifts of the Spirit, and it just says you just don't honor God. So there's a preeminence of love, and our next section will consider, verses 4 through 6, the practice of love. Verse 4, we're told, love suffers long and is kind. Love, love is an expression. Um, it's visible, it, love is not self-promoting. And this is where I want to talk, mention just briefly. So we, we understand that the English, contemporary English language, they had to take the language of Jesus' day, the, the Greek language, if you would, for New Testament, and, of course, translate it into English language. And so from the Greek, they had three words, actually four, but three that were primarily used for love. One of them was eros, Phileo or philia, and then agape. Eros, which is where we get the word erotic. It's a, it was actually never used in the translation into the New Testament. Where love was to be used, that word was never used. I think in part, in that culture, and even to temp, temp, temporarily, it was too sensual, it was too corrupted within the culture. It's much like the word when people say use the word love today. They don't actually mean love. They mean lust. 
they mean uh, obsession. They, you know, like so they'll say you know, you hear it in our culture, making love. Well, it's probably participating in immorality many times it's being used. But you know what I'm saying? It's it's not the same word that we would see. Like for example, there's phileo, philia. You ever heard of the city of brotherly love? Where's that? Phila. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It conveys this brotherly friendship, this affection, a different kind of love, different than eros. And then the other word that's translated into English, which is where we, what we're looking at here, is agape. Agape love. Charity is how some, trans, some words translate that Greek word. I think the King James uses charity or charis. But it really conveys love, that loves without changing. It's divine love that's a gift. Let me read to you a description, a way to understand this word from David Guzik. This word has little to do with emotion. It has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. Let me say that one more time. This word, agape, this word has little to do with emotion. It has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. What do we know is the perfect expression of that? For God so loved the world that he gave himself. That whoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. His only son, if you would. He, he came as a man, Jesus, lived a sinless life, laid down that life as a sin debt payment, suffered horribly on the cross, placed in a tomb, rose from the dead. That, that was a love that was an issue of concern for the other, the other being you and me for humanity. Agape love. So when we think of it, when we're looking through this, we want to understand, especially if we, we come into the practice, it's not a love that you can express if you haven't received it. You, you can't just manufacture this type of kindness and generosity and graciousness. It has to be implanted. It's given to you when you're born again, born of the Spirit. The very love that compelled Jesus and motivated and stirred him and drew him and, 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 and was victorious on the cross is the love that's implanted within you and me when we're born again, born of the Spirit. I believe it's part of the reason why many Christians can't fulfill the call of Christ. What I mean is they are born again, and then they try to live on their own resources without tapping into the love of God. And that's why they can find themselves many times uh, hypercritical, overbearing. Um, quite honestly, some are racist. Others are just, you know, bigoted, uh, chauvinist. I'm talking about Christians. It's, oh, maybe I should say that those are only non-believers. No, that's the expression of believers. Because when you don't realize, you have to tap into, you have to rely upon, you have to say, God, I don't know how to love this way. I don't know how to do this. I, I would love to be able to be that, but I'm not. How do I do it? And it's literally saying, God, I need to know you in a deeper way that this love you've implanted within me can bear fruit in my life. And, and sadly, too many live without that realization of their dependence upon God in order to love with other people. Let me just let's look through this. Verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. You can take this verse and you can insert Jesus' name where love is. And I think we could, we could agree with that, right? Jesus suffered long in his kind. Jesus does not envy. 
Jesus does not parade himself, is not puffed up. You, you could do that. And it would be accurate. Let's try one more. Let's put your name there. Dan suffers long and is kind. This is really awkward. Dan does not, you know, I just, it's really weird to lie in church. You know what I'm saying? Dan does not. Now, you, and don't, you, don't laugh at me like I'm the only one doing it. I'll, I'll pick your name. Put that name up there. Any one of us. It really is awkward and uncomfortable, right? Because if we're truthful, like, I, I don't find myself doing that. It's not that we can't. He's just calling us close to him so that we'll know that love. So his model, Jesus does suffer long. He did suffer long and still does. And is kind. Verse 5, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, does not provoke, thinks no evil. Uh, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own. It's, um, love is, is not rooted in our own self-interest where we're constantly striving to get the best for ourselves. It's, it's rooted in the heart of God, the love of God. When it speaks of it's not provoked, means love's not um, irritable and easily angered. Mark 3, verse 5. Jesus was angered because of the hardness of the heart of the people, but he did not sin. He was provoked by the actions, but he wasn't provoked to sin. He was. I say that because we're told in... Uh, Psalm or Psalm four, be angry and sin not, and do not sin. Anger is an emotion that, properly constrained by the Word of God, compels us to do something that that is is helpful. So when, when Jesus is it says literally he was angered, he then healed. He he then expressed love. He didn't like push his own agenda. There's, in this section, eight things that love is not. Sometimes it's good as you're trying to figure out what it is to make sure you understand what it's not. Does that make sense? So this, I know it's not this. It's not what? Love does not envy, which means basically it's conveying covet. doesn't desire other people's stuff all the time. does not parade itself. In other words, lift itself up and say, hey, look at me. Is not puffed up, self-inflated. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up, is what the Bible tells us. Um, it does not behave rudely. So uh, love handles others gently and doesn't purposely embarrass them or act cruelly. That's to be applied in the home as well. And I just know there's just times that things happen in the home that would never happen in the congregation in a public gathering. There's expressions of anger. There's rude things done and mean things said. And, and we want to realize, man, that just let's just if that happens in your home and you, you're one that expresses that, just lay it before the Lord. Because it's actually hindering you more than anything. It's hard for the other person or the people or however it may be expressed. But it's going to hurt you more and more. It's going to hold you back. And it's not that you have, you know, um, you know, self-will and a New Year's resolution mindset to fix this problem. He's like, God, I, I don't like this expression. It's inconsistent with your love. 
Show me how to love and not, you know, be this way, easily irritated or irritable and angered. Another thing we see from this passage, that thing that love is not, it thinks no evil. It's not looking to get even. It's not, you know, kind of tilting this way in the ways of the world. It's recognizing that you will probably lean that way. But it's choosing to go, no, love uprights us when we lean too far one way. Love says this is that's not the way to go about it. Does not rejoice in iniquity. Love does not do that. When something happens to someone, according to your preset righteousness, you determine that that uh, stumbling or that failure or that lack of promotion or whatever, that good serves them right. You're rejoicing in iniquity. It may not be iniquity that what happened to them. You've made it iniquity by rejoicing in their loss. Or, does that make sense? Love doesn't do that. Love teaches us, like, hey, okay, whatever. Let's move along. So love does not rejoice in iniquity. We see, uh, as we look into the third section here, in the perfect work of God. So we've seen the preeminence of love by outline. We've seen the practice of love. Let's look into the perfect work of love, beginning in verse 7. Actually, the latter part of verse 6. Love rejoices in the truth. Rejoices in the truth. Hearing good things and choosing to rejoice. Hearing of even tough things and saying, you know, I'm still going to rejoice. I'm still going to choose to follow the Lord. I'm still going to take hold of it. You know, truth is difficult. Agreed? The Bible speaks of mercy and truth frequently because mercy on itself can, can be a little weak and, and, and troublesome. Mercy always extending um, forgiveness, not forgiveness, but, uh, you know, just, oh, it'll be okay. You know, I like it this way. Mercy is more like my wife. She's more merciful. And so she, she's, she was willing to, you know this, so, yeah, whatever. She would overlook things with the kids in the light of mercy. And then along would come dad. And I live in the light of truth. So I'm over here like, no, they're going to pay. They're gonna, there's going to be some sweat. There's going to be some chores. Someone's going to be some changing around here. And so our law, mercy is kind of like, or truth is kind of like law, a little heavy over here with truth. And then mercy, it brings it together. Mercy and truth go well together, agreed? It takes both. But when we rejoice in truth, we're realizing this is going to work out. You know, Jesus said about truth, you shall know the truth, him, and the truth will do something in your life. The truth will set you free. You'll be liberated from the constraints of ignorance in regards to his word, or perhaps rebellion to his word. And the truth literally sets us free. We're able to walk according to his instruction. We also know, that according to this, love bears all things. This conveys the idea that love persists against things that intend to destroy it. Love persists against things that intend to destroy it. Bears all things. You live in a time, very odd times from a historical perspective, a national perspective. No one would have looked and said, hey, just think, 25 years from now, back 25 years ago, Christianity will be condemned 
Islamic belief will be promoted. Do you know what's happening right now in the world you live in? I mean, we can pretend like it's not true and we can hope it isn't so, but just look around. Love is being undermined. Love is being criticized. Love is being contempt. I get it. There's some hypocrisy that causes people to think from an objective standpoint that this quote doesn't work. But the truth of the gospel, the love presented by God, teaches us that that's unique. And this world doesn't want it. The world you live in doesn't want it. You know that when you, and along those lines, where you know, rejoicing in the truth, burying all things. When you choose to walk according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you walk in truth, you're a problem to people. And you didn't want to be. You're trying to get along. But your obedience infuriates disobedience. Do you realize that, right? Think Cain and Abel. Why did Cain kill Abel? In a short summary, you can look it up in your homework and dig in on your own. Cain killed Abel because Abel offered a a sacrifice or an offering of obedience. It was disobedience that incited him to kill him. So it's weird because obedience in your life, for some people, they're going to be infuriated. They're going to see it and they won't know why. They won't say, well, it's because you're following God and it just freaks me out. They won't say that. They'll just undermine what you stand for and who you are. Because they're opposed to truth. They believe that it should be something that feels good. You know, I even here, you know, we're, we're bearing all things and we're facing different challenges. And I had a person ask here recently, um, well, where, where, where does Calvary Chapel Mountain Home stand on abortion? I'm like, you don't attend here. <laughs> I knew that. I, I'm just guessing. Because how did they not know? Like, how did you not know? We don't have a stand on abortion. We have a stand for life. We believe that life begins at conception. We believe that we should protect life, the most innocent of people. We, we believe that you're, you're, there's, just, there's no room for discussion and debate. I'm not going to get played by the contemporary hot topics and thought because somebody else wants to undermine an intent to do harm to truth. The, the truth is, it's a child. And a child should be protected and a child should be taken care of. And the truth is, in our culture, in this community, sometimes even in this gathering on most weekends, there are people that have been deceived by this lie. They're living with the guilt of, of an abortion. And, and they're working, trying to work through it because they have been misled and lied to. And they're a victim of the society and this intent to, to, to tear things apart. And so now, if you, have, if you want to ask me after service what our position is on abortion, I'm glad to go over it with you if I've left any vagueness to it. And other things, too. We're not going to get played by these hot topics. We're not going to participate in sexual mutilation of children. We're not going to say it's okay for a culture to do that. We're not going to tell them you can just decide when you're nine what gender you're going to be. How stupid can that be? And you can be saying, well, gosh, Dan, you're not being very loving. Well, I'll pray. I think I actually am being loving because I'm willing to hit it straight on with compassion, kindness, and understanding. I get it, but I won't. We won't. I can think I speak for most people that are here. We're not going to just give in because there's an intent to destroy. We're going to bear all things, believe all things. What are the things we believe? Right here. Genesis to Revelation. We are told that we have in the word of God all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything we need. 
So therefore, we're going to believe. I believe all of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. Do I understand it? Not even close. Do I know it all? No, not even close. I can read it. I can even memorize sections. I can quote it and impress you. But do I understand it? No, I don't. But I don't discount something I don't understand. You'd, you'd be kicking out a lot of stuff if you had to get rid of everything you didn't understand. You wouldn't even be able to drive home. You would have to walk. But you might not understand how your shoes are built, so you might have to take them off. I mean, there's a point where you're like, I don't understand everything. But I believe the Word of God to be true. I hope. Not because the weather might change and then the weather will be better or my team might win today. That's not hope, biblically. Hope is the expectation of coming good. I hope all things because of the love implanted in me. You hope because you know God's faithful. God showed his love when he fulfilled prophecy and came in the person of Jesus Christ the first time. Accomplishes the purpose of the Father through the power of the Spirit for the glorification of Jesus and, and, and rose, ascended back into heaven. He, he accomplished all things. I have hope that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. He did it once, he'll do it again. He said he's coming back, he's going to show up. I don't go, oh gosh, maybe. I haven't studied the odds of him returning. You see what I'm saying? We believe all things, we hope all things, we endure all things. You endure because it's difficult, right? You don't go, well, this walking downhill sure sucks. It's so hard, gravity pulls me, here I go. You just roll with it. Sometimes we really roll with it. You endure on an uphill, agreed? You endure, endure with the mountain home resistance training. You know what that is? Wind. That's what that is. And so, you, you see what I'm saying? Endure indicates that there's some difficulty. Christian, get ready. You're going to face more difficulties. You're going to face them at a personal level with your family. You're going to face them with your finances. You're going to face them in your culture. You're going to face them in a global perspective. There's things coming that are just going to happen. And I, I'm not trying to be prophetic. I'm just, I'm actually speaking probability. Because historically, it's happened to every other generation. What we're seeing is even more. Endures all things. Love never fails. Love never fails. We see difficulty. We see loss of temporal things. Loss of life even. Love never fails. Jesus accomplished perfectly the salvation of humanity to whomever will believe in him. Love never fails. He offered it to you and me. Let me finish out with 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only, son, his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this, the love of God was made known to us. This is what we know love to look like. It was manifested to us, Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 19 of the same chapter, we love him because he first loved us. See, we're loving him even today and in learning this, it's because he first loved us. Because he indwells us, he empowers us with the love that compelled him to the cross and carried him through to victory. It's the same love that's in you when you're a born-again Christian. It's resource, implanted, it's residing within you. Our encouragement, our exhortation from the word is that we would choose love. That we would choose love. We choose, how, how do I love this way? How do I know, how do I do this, God? And guess what that means? You're joyfully dependent upon Jesus Christ. You're joyfully dependent upon God to teach you how to live like his child in a way that honors him. 
We'll have the worship team come up and we'll finish with one more verse. We've read it already. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. You're going to have opportunity this week to express love. You're going to have opportunity, I'm pretty confident, many of you, most of you, will have a new opportunity at a dinner on Thursday to love that ugly uncle, to love that difficult aunt, to be nice to that person that you really were trying to be sick this week so you wouldn't have to go to the dinner, or whatever it may be. You can know what I'm saying. We're, we're, we're joyfully challenged to learn to love, choose love. Will you stand with me? We'll pray and close out our time with a song of worship together. God, how beautiful your word is. As we confess, we, we need more of you and less of ourselves. I speak for myself, as you know, God, but I'm confident I represent many in this room and who are hearing this message. Lord, we need more of you, God. We can do better in regards to love. I can do better. We can do better. But not out of self-determination or resolution, but out of a renewed confidence in you, God, that those things that we see as a mountain, that you would remove them. Those things that we are aware of that are pending and and a problem and uh, causing some fear, may we remember that your love, perfect love, casts out fear, for fear involves torment. And we know your love in a deeper way, in a practical way. Guard us from any religion and any pattern of ritual and draw us to you. That we would say, as your word reveals, John the Baptist, from the heart declaring that he would decrease and you would increase. Likewise, Lord, show us what that looks like in our own lives for your glory and your joy. It's in your name we pray. We sing this song to you, Jesus. Amen.